Father, we invoke the presence of your Spirit here with us this morning. We bow in your presence. We acknowledge you as the sovereign God, ruler of the universe, and lover of our lives. And we're so grateful, Lord, as we come into this time of the year when we commemorate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember the incarnation, the great humility of God to come in the flesh and to dwell among us, to become Emmanuel. And we're so grateful that that has been not only the source of our salvation, but the source of our eternal hope. And Father, we come today to ask you to direct us, to teach us, to lead us through your word, and to help us to understand from these events which took place 3,500 years ago what it is you're saying to us today. And Lord, I pray your blessing upon everyone in this room this morning. And I pray that you will be throughout this complex today as the word is proclaimed in any and all venues that the Spirit of God will be transforming lives. And if there is anyone here this morning who has never come to know you as Lord and King, as Emmanuel, that you will do that great work in that heart. We thank you for your love and grace and for your keeping power. And we commit our time and our strength and our persons to you in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Joshua, the eighth chapter of the book of Joshua, I'd like to read the first nine verses. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to A. See, I have given into your hand the king of A, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to A and its king, just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to A. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. And he commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out to meet us as at first, that we will flee from before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing before us as at first. So we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. So jo but Joshua spent the night among the people. Israel had experienced a humiliating defeat before A, just shortly before this, a few days before. It had been a disaster for them. And then they had gone through the painful process of isolating and rooting out the sin of Achan, which had caused the disaster. And so Israel now is ready to taste victory. This time, however, they were going to have to act like a real army. 
Remember in the first instance, as we have already studied about Jericho, they simply marched around the city and ultimately the walls fell down and they raided the city. It was not anything that required any particular military-like uh, preparation or action. But now they were going to have to learn strategy. They were going to have to learn battle tactics. God had given them Jericho miraculously, but now they needed to learn the art of war. God was going to be with them. He had not abandoned them just because they were going to have to, to do these things that we've read in this passage today. But what he was saying to them was that they could not, as a result of that, back off and slack off because they thought God would do the work for them. They were going to have to learn to become the best soldiers they could be. And I think at the end of class last time, I attempted to emphasize that this is a real lesson to us. I mean, we may not be soldiers going out in a literal sense to fight against a literal city, but we nevertheless are people who are in spiritual combat because spiritual warfare is going on all the time. And, and we see this, I think, ever more intensely as we approach the end of the millennium and as we look at the conditions around the world. Because we know that as believers, the scripture tells us that the Spirit of God dwells within those who are truly born again. We, we cannot take that as an excuse, therefore, just to kind of sloppily do everything and be mediocre in those things in which we could be excellent. I, I, le I think the very last thing I read uh, in class last week was from 1 Corinthians 10.31, where we read a, a rather short but very direct passage. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And you notice what Paul is doing there. He's taking the very, very mundane thing and using that as an example. <laughs> if we're supposed to glorify God in the mundane thing we do three times a day or however many times a day we may do that, how much more in the other things, which are much more important in our daily lives, are we to glorify God? Obviously, lack of discipline, slovenliness, sloppiness, these kinds of things do not glorify God. And I think sometimes we are guilty within the church of these things, of not doing well the things we've been assigned to do, of not preparing well to do whatever God has given us to do, whether it be to speak, whether it be to sing, whether it be to usher, whatever it is to be. There is preparation that needs to go into the service of God. And, and that preparation needs to be done well. We aren't all talented the same, but we can all do the very best that we are capable of doing. And, and, and this is, I, I mentioned this before, this is something I, I really try to get across to the students at college. Because if you can remember back when you were in college, some of us can remember it a little more readily than others, that there's so many things going on that it's easy to become so dispersed that you don't do anything well. Y your spiritual life becomes kind of haphazard and, and your study life becomes haphazard and your social life becomes haphazard. I mean, this is a bunch of haphazard things. That's the way God intends for it to be. He expects us to do everything we do well. And if we can't do it well, don't do it, you know? Let me, let me turn to uh, Colossians 3. This is probably one of the best passages that kind of hammers this truth home. Colossians chapter 3. 
reading at verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That kind of covers it all. <laughs> whatever you do in word or deed, we're, we're to do it to the glory of God, not for the measure of man. You know, we, we may work at our job to please our boss, but you all know the old cliche is that as soon as the boss is gone, the level of work drops. It's sort of like when the cat's away, the mice will play. And that, that ought not to be true for a Christian because our boss, so to speak, is never away. His eye is ever vigilant and, and he is ever caring that we reflect him in all that we do. The glory of God be reflected out of us at all times and in all places. If you look down in verses 23 and 24, it further says this, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And, and if we think about that word Lord, the word Lord means sovereign. It means, well, in, in the medieval world, world, it was suzerain. And suzerain was the one who was above you and the one you served and the one to whom you owed your commitment, even your life in battle. And, and so the word Lord means the one to whom we owe it all, our place in life, the things we possess, our eternal souls. And therefore it is him whom we serve. And if we're serving him who is always there, ever vigilant, there's not a time when we can say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because nobody's looking. It changes our whole character. It changes the kind of person that we are. We, we see excellence as something that should characterize our lives and everything we do. Not necessarily excellence in the way the world measures excellence, but excellence in the way God measures excellence. The world sometimes measures excellence is that you sell more of whatever it is than anybody else does. Well, that may not be God's measure because sometimes people sell more of something or other because they do some rather underhanded things in order to do that. Like, you know, the famous used car salesman. Uh, you know, not all used car salesmen try to sell you a bill of goods, but there are those who do. And that's not glorifying to God, obviously. Well, as we go back to this um, passage in Joshua 8, in order to protect Israel from losses, a brilliantly planned trap or ambush was to be used. 30,000 men. Now notice, you remember last time, or I guess two times ago, whenever it was, we were talking about uh, Israel moving up to, to attack A, and, and they did it on their own. They just said, oh, no, no problem. We can take this city. And so two or 3,000 is all we need. Go up there and take the city. And I pointed out to you the fact that a city of 12,000 uh, could easily muster an army of 3,000 men. And for you as an attacking army to try to take a fortified place with an army equal in size to yours, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Because the standard in, in the medieval world uh, was that it took at least seven to ten times the number of attackers to overwhelm a citadel defended by a garrison only one-seventh to one-tenth the size of the attacking army. And I used the illustration of Constantinople. Constantinople, with only 10,000 men, held off an army of Turks of 150,000 strong for six weeks. 
And then the only reason the Turks got into the city was they had cannons and they were able to blow a hole through the wall. Otherwise, they probably never would have taken it even then. And so here we're looking at a number more in line, 30,000 men, even though they're not going to have to besiege the city. Nevertheless, 30,000 men were sent by night up the escarpment. Again, if you can just visualize this hill, this, this, this rise. You're, you're climbing from Jericho, which is about 900 feet above sea level, and you're climbing up to Ai, which is at 2,000 feet above sea level. You're climbing up 3,000 feet of escarpment, and it's pretty barren stuff rocky, grassy slopes, and, and you're climbing this and, and you're coming up to the, to the area around the city of A. And these men were then to go around the city. It was night, so the enemy wouldn't see them. They were to go and, and to get into the valley. I stood on one little rise here, and Bethel stood on another rise over here to the west, about two miles away, and in between is a valley. So they were to hide down in that valley there. Obviously, there must have been enough brush and rocks and so forth for them to, to stay out of sight. And, and they were to remain there until the trap was to be sprung. The plan was that Joshua, the next morning, would lead another army, a second army, up the escarpment from the east, and he would attack the city, or appear to be attacking the city. And then when the defenders of the city came rushing out to attack the Israelites, they would pretend to be fleeing in utter disarray back towards the wilderness, and they would suck all the defenders out of the city and leave the city, therefore, undefended. And the people in ambush would rise up and move into the city and capture the city. And in this instance, we're told they were allowed to plunder the city for themselves. Plunder the city for themselves. How much would Aiken have wished to have been able to read this book? <laughs> it is so ironic to realize that had Aiken simply obeyed God at Jericho, <laughs> he would have lived to plunder A and other cities and plunder them to his heart's content and been blessed of God in the so doing of it rather than cursed because he couldn't wait and violated God's ban and brought upon himself the curse of God and thus on the whole nation. What this tells us is that trusting God's word and obeying God's word is the only way to live. There isn't any other way to live because any other way will be disaster. Any other way will be destruction. Any other way will be death. Any other way will be disappointing. Well, let's lead, read on here in the 8th chapter, beginning of verse 10. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people, and he went up with the elders of Israel before the people of to A. Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of A. Now there was a valley between him and A. And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and A on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city and its rear guard on the west side of the city. And Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. And it came about when the king of A saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. He and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all the people pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. 
And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel. And they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. The word unguarded also can be translated open. God's plan worked beautifully. God's plans always do work beautifully when we follow them. We can see by the great victory that they won here that God's people will have success when they do three things. First of all, follow God's plan rather than their own plan. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. That is a law of this world. And unfortunately, the vast majority of people are living according to that law. They're following the way that seems right to them and rejecting the way that is the right way, which is the way of God. Secondly, not only following God's plan, but following it explicitly, exactly. Not saying, well, this is what God wants me to do, but I think I'll modify it here, I'll modify it there. You know, it's all right, as long as I'm doing, going in the general direction. God's plans do not need modification because God is perfect and his plans are always perfect and all we can do is mess them up. So don't modify them. Thirdly, we must depend upon God's strength for the victory because if we go forth in our strength, victory will not be ours just as it was not Israel's when they tried to take Ai in their own strength. So what we have is Joshua now the next morning leading Actually, it's still evening. He's, it's, it's not light yet, but he's leading the army up the hill so that they can camp on the ridge just to the north of the city of A. So if you can picture this, here's A sitting on top of the hill. And from the east, this army is coming up the escarpment. And as they come towards A, they follow a ridge, a left ridge, a left-hand ridge. And they follow that ridge over, and they come to the point where they're directly north of the city of A, and there they camp. And in between them and A is a valley, we're told in the scripture there. So there's a valley to the west and a valley to the north, and we know it drops off into the Jordan Valley to the east. I know A is up on kind of a hilltop, which is where fortified cities were usually built. And so he camps in plain view, no attempt to hide this army. He wants the men of A to see there is the Israelite army. Now, before he was seen, either the first night or the second night, we don't know which, he detached 5,000 men from the army which he had with him. Now, we're not told in Scripture how big the army was that Joshua led and camped to the north. But he detached 5,000 men and sent them over towards Bethel to also hide in ambush in addition to the 30,000 that are already there. But apparently they're a little bit further to the north because they're going to help spring the trap uh, on the back of the attacking forces. The following morning, the men of A who have seen Israel, Israel camped over there have, have decided they're going to they're attack Israel. And they're, they're going to move out of their fortification and they are going to launch a battle in the open plain. This was folly. To rush out of their walls, to attack an army that was superior to theirs, probably several times superior to theirs. 
Now, why would they rush out of the protection of their walls in order to attack, attack an army that was superior in size? And the reason, of course, was they were overflowing with the confidence of the fact they had just routed the Israelite army uh, less than a week before, chased them all the way down the hill. Eh, there's a few more of them, so what's the big deal? Uh, we're just going to go right out there because they are afraid of us. They must have seen that the Israelite army was more numerous than it had been in the previous battle. I mean, we're not talking about two or 3,000 anymore. We're probably talking about at least 10 times that many. But that doesn't seem to deter them. They come rushing out of their city to attack Israel. The much-feared Israelites had been easily routed the time before, and I think they were convinced of this. And this is, I think, what gave them the willingness to do this. Their tutelary god and it, it's not named, so we don't know what the guardian god was of the city of A. But they believed that their guardian god was more powerful than Yahweh. That's why they routed the Israelite army before, and they felt that's what would happen again. You see, they understood that this is a spiritual battle. To the degree they understood the spiritual realm, we don't know, probably not very well. But they did believe that their god could interfere in life and deal with an enemy. And they, feel that that, they felt that that's how come they routed Israel before. And Yahweh, in spite of dividing the Red Sea and dividing the Jordan and knocking the walls down of Jericho, was vulnerable. It's just that those other gods weren't quite as strong as, as our God. And our God gave us victory. And so they rushed out in the strength of their God. You know, one of the important truths you discover from this is that through most of history, Almost all peoples have been profoundly religious. It's really only until you come to the 20th century that you find large groups of peoples who have proclaimed themselves to be atheistic or agnostic, you know, somehow unreligious or non-religious. That has not characterized the human race for almost all of its existence all over the world. And, and even today we find that many non-religious people are discovering that their non-religion doesn't work. That was one of the reasons that the Soviet Union collapsed. The whole Eastern Bloc collapsed partly because of the spiritual vacuum created by declared atheism. Because Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity in the human heart. In every human being there is a sense of the reality of eternity. And, and to deny that, and to say that man is just an organism that dies like a dog and, and is gone and, and disappears into the ground and, and is no more, um, just simply flies in the face about what we know to be true innately, intrinsically. Of course, many peoples who have declared themselves to be non-religious are changing their ideas, even in this so-called modern world. In fact, some of them are becoming strangely religious, chasing after occultic things and and, and horoscopes and stuff that, you know, it's ancient, ancient, ancient stuff. Seems to fly in the face not only of true faith, but of even modern science. Well, according to the plan, as the, as, as the forces of A came running out of the city and came screaming and, you know, probably running across the, down the valley and up towards the Israelite camp, the Israelites, of course, feigned shock. Oh, no, we're going to be killed again. And, and, and so they, they retreated backwards towards the Jordan Valley, back the way they came. They began to retreat. That's exactly what the army had done just a few days before, only in that case it was really retreating, and they were fleeing. And so the Canaanites, I mean, this was deja vu. 
only we're chasing a lot more of them now. The flight of the Israelites appeared to be so real, so genuine, that as the men were chasing the Israelites, they said to the others, come on, let's all get in on this. And everybody in the city who could carry a weapon ran out through the gate and left the gate standing wide open. Not a man left to defend the walls, not a man left to defend the gate. Everybody was gone. Chasing after Israel, drawn into the chase. Strangely, even the men of nearby Bethel, were told, joined in the chase. Just two miles away, they thought, why should the men of A get all the credit and all the plunder? Let's get in on this too. So they come pouring out of their city to chase Israel. The Canaanites were confident that they had again routed Israel. And this time they were hoping for plunder. They would plunder the camp that the Israelites had just camped in. They would plunder, hopefully maybe even chase Israel all the way down to their home camp at Gilgal and plunder that. Matthew Henry, who is, of course, that uh, famous old uh, commentator, gives some good insight here. He says, What an infatuated enemy the king of Ai was. He did not, by his scouts, discover that those that lay in ambush behind his city. He didn't even check to find out if there was somebody out there somewhere who might come in if you leave the gates wide open. From the killing of 36 men out of 3,000 when Israel made the former attack upon his city, he inferred the total routing of this great army as he now had to deal with. And then he has this little quotation which comes out of the passage. They flee before us as at first. And then he makes this profound statement. How the prosperity of fools destroys them and hardens them to their ruin. How the prosperity of fools destroys them and hardens them to their ruin. Think about it. How many people in this country are hardened to the gospel because they have been extremely prosperous? They have wealth untold. Now, we, we occasionally like to listen to the, the biographies that are on uh, A&E. And when you listen to those biographies, it's, we, we com- often note the fact that nothing is, almost nothing is ever said about faith in the hearts of any of these people. Now, of course, it can be partly the bias of, of the programmers. But usually if faith is mentioned, it's mentioned in a negative way. So many people who are prosperous have no interest in God. Because why? They don't need him. They're prosperous. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle. Well, let's read on here in chapter 8, verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards A, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in ambush rose quickly from their place. And when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, they had no place to flee this way or that. For the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai. And the others came out of the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai, 
and brought him to Joshua. Well, there was a propitious moment, the exact moment, and we don't know how God told Joshua. We simply read that the Lord said to Joshua. How did he say to Joshua? Did he say it audibly? Did he say it in his heart? Did he say it through a prophet? We aren't told how, but all we know is he said to Joshua, this is the time to spring the ambush. And that the prearranged signal would be employed. And obviously, even though the passage has not said it before, the prearranged signal was for Joshua to raise his javelin and point it towards Ai, and that meant spring the ambush. <laughs> now think of the practicality of all of this. This is happening over a space of um, several miles. The ambush is in the valley between Bethel and Ai, and if it more or less down the bottom of the valley, it was probably about a mile from Ai. The Israelites were on a hill to the north, um, probably at least two miles away from the ambush people, and they were feigning retreat, so they were increasing the distance. So you can know that whoever was responsible for watching Joshua from the people in ambush, there were no binoculars in those days, had to be a real Hawkeye. Somebody with 2010 vision or whatever it takes, you know, to be able to see in the, uh, you know, in, a, in the chaos and over a great distance. I, I think, though, we have to realize that Joshua wasn't standing in the middle of a melee going like this, you know. He probably ran to the top of a hillock or climbed a rock and stood up there. It's early morning. The sun rises in the east, which would be behind Joshua. And so on top of the rock, he held up the javelin, and of course, he'd be silhouetted against the morning sky. And the person could see, I see Joshua, and the signal has been given. Let's spring the trap. And as he raised his javelin, 30,000 men rushed out of the brush and towards the city of Ai. And I think at the same time, even though it isn't very specific in this class, in this passage, it's inferred that some of them probably headed into Bethel, the two cities, both gates standing wide open, not a single defender within the walls. Now, you know, you'd think, the king of Ai, wise man, he'd say, well, let, let's just in case, let's leave a detachment, 20 soldiers behind, keep the gates shut, you know, just something in case, because with the gates wide open, no soldiers, anybody could come into the city, just a passing group of brigands could walk in the city and, and rip off whatever they wanted. And, and, and so, but the folly of the fool is his ruin. No resistance. 30,000 men rushed into the city, no resistance, nobody to stop them. And as they ran through the city, they torched everything combustible because they wanted the signal to go out as quickly as possible. We have the city, therefore stop fleeing in front of the Canaanites. Put yourself in the place of a woman of A. And you're celebrating the fact that your men are out there defeating Israel and they're going to bring plunder back. And suddenly there are these alien soldiers running through your streets by the thousand. The shock of this assault we have been had. Well, the signal went up. The smoke ascended to heaven, we're told. The fires were set. The smoke was rising, which would signal to Joshua the city has been taken. Well, some of the Canaanites in their running and everything suddenly caught something out of, the, out of their eye. They turned around and the smoke was rising from their seat. Not a little smoke like somebody's little kitchen fire, you know but a great blaze. And they halted in their tracks and gestured, and others who saw them turned and looked, and suddenly they realized their cities were in flames. In a moment, 
the thrill of the chase evaporated. Can, can you just imagine how quickly their emotions turned from the adrenaline of chasing the Israelites looking for plunder and all of a sudden <laughs> the absolute opposite of what they thought was happening was happening. Their city was on fire. They knew they had been tricked. They should have known. It was way too easy. Israel had not even given them a battle before they were fleeing. And they were so more numerous. I mean, if there had been any wise man in the middle, in the midst of them, they should have thought, you know, something's wrong here. Well, the 5,000 men that Joshua had detached uh, from his army and placed over behind them now certainly began to spring the trap from the rear uh, to, to close off retreat from the Canaanites as Israel stopped fleeing and turned on their enemy and began to charge them. Then out of the city of Aif came the men who had captured the city to join, and, and the Canaanites were totally trapped, surrounded. There was no place to go. The passage says, this way or that, there was no place to flee. They were suddenly in the midst of an army that was multiple times larger than theirs and was bent on their destruction. And of course, we have to realize the spiritual realm, what's happening here. Israel not only has physical adrenaline flowing, but there's spiritual adrenaline flowing. God has given us the victory. And for the Canaanites, where is our God? And the fear that had been part of the Canaanite cause suddenly collapsed upon them. And they fled in utter terror into the arms or into the spear points of Israelites attacking from all sides. Verse 17 informs us that the men of Bethel had joined the men of Ai in pursuit. And so I think it's only logical for us to know or to recognize that since these armies, are, these two cities were only two miles apart, that when Israel captured Ai, they also captured Bethel at the same time because there were no defenders left there either. The gate was wide open, and so both cities were torched simultaneously. Behind this victory for Israel and this defeat for the Canaanites is a truth which I think is summarized for us in Psalm 37. You read a, a portion of Psalm 37, verse 16. These are, of course, our eternal truths. Psalm 37, 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, in the days of famine they will have abundance, but the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. We've all seen the pastures, haven't we, with their flowers in the spring, all these lovely flowers, and then you go there in August and it's a burnt <coughs> mess. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, and those cursed by him will be cut off. That ver verse applies directly to what we're reading here in Joshua. Those blessed by God will inherit the land. Israel inherited the land. The Canaanites were cursed by him, and they were cut off. They were destroyed. Their cities were ruined. And again, we have to remind ourselves, why were these people cursed by God? 
They were cursed by God because God told Abraham, I will give these people 400 years to turn from their wicked ways. Now that's patience. And they would not. And therefore they were cut off. We, we live at a time when there's a very willy-nilly, wishy-washy way of viewing how God functions. We sometimes emphasize the, great, the, the love and the grace of God to the extent that we neglect the justice of God and the judgment of God. There has got to be a balance. God is a God of love. God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy and it permeates the whole scripture from Genesis through Revelation. But at the same time, justice and judgment is there also. You remember when God sent the great flood of Noah, he had said that, you know, my spirit will not always strive with men. The spirit of God strives, the hound of heaven is at work. But those who will not, those who reject, those who will not accept, those who will insist on living their own lives will experience justice and judgment because there is no other option. But for those of us who accept the grace and mercy and love of God, it's because Christ has already taken our judgment and given us eternal life. And, and to me, that's really the great message of, of Christmas time. At Christmas, we so often emphasize the little baby in the, in the manger, meek and mild. But we need to remember that the little baby in the manger was the mighty God of the universe. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He not only is the wonderful counselor, but he carries the judgment of the everlasting Father. And as we view him rightly, we have a good understanding of what he's doing today. And you and I live at a time when God's patience and mercy is being tried ultimately. But God will bring justice and righteousness. And, and, and to me, that's always, as I look at the tragedies that are happening around the world, you know, the horrible nature of what's going on in Bosnia and, and, and the implacable hatred of, of, uh, of uh, Saddam Hussein and, and the terrible things that are going on in this country, the only comfort in it all is to know that one day it will all be set right because we can't fool God. We can fool the courts here and we may turn killers free and we may end up putting innocent people in jail, but with God, that doesn't happen. Of course, for some of us who are impatient, which is probably all of us, uh, we'd like it to happen sooner rather than later, in here and rather than there. But our great hope is, and our great knowledge is, that God will set it all right one day. And, and, and as, as we read here in, uh, in the 37th Psalm, God's people will not be ashamed in the time of evil. God's people will not be ashamed in the time of evil. We live in a time of evil, but we are not to be ashamed, not to be ashamed of, uh, for the one, uh, of the one for whom we stand, not be ashamed of our stance. And of course, that's hard to do because we're often pointed out today as bigoted people who don't have this pluralistic view of things. We're narrow-minded. We have this little idea and we're, we're condemning everybody else. We, I hope we're not condemning anybody. It's not up to us to condemn anyone. We simply proclaim the truth. And it is God who judges the hearts. But we must love and proclaim and be the example. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. Well, next Sunday, I'd like for us to finish the eighth chapter. Wonderful things happen in the last part of the eighth chapter. And then we'll get into 
uh, the ninth chapter, and uh, that's an amazing story in the ninth chapter of Joshua. 